Welcome to All Sides with Anna Staber. It's Monday, which means it's our weekly reporter roundtable, where we catch up on the statehouse news from last week and preview the week ahead. Let's get into it. Three Republicans hoping to take on Sherrod Brown in the U.S. Senate race met on the debate stage for the first time. They talked about abortion, immigration, drug cartels, and Donald Trump. The winner of the March 19th primary will face Senator Brown in an expensive fight that could determine who controls the Senate. Here to help us dissect the debate is Laura Hancock, politics and policy reporter for Cleveland.com, Karen Kassler, bureau chief for the Ohio Public Radio State House News Bureau, and Julie Carr-Smythe, government and politics reporter for the Associated Press. Welcome. Good morning. Good morning. So, Julie, you've covered a number of debates over the years. Yes. <laughs> and you went up for this one. Yes. So uh, what was your overall take on the evening? Um, what I was watching for was uh, the lanes each of these gentlemen were going to try to pick. Obviously, originally we had um, we had sort of two Trump-aligned candidates of, um, scrambling for that endorsement. And then we had Matt Dolan, the Senate the state senator who had said, you know, I'm not really going to run for that. Um, however, in the interim, Trump has endorsed. And so he has endorsed Bernie Marino. And I was watching to see sort of how Secretary of State Franklin Rose would um, try to redefine that. So the three lanes that I that I watched <laughs> was that um, Dolan remains sort of I'm, you know, I'm the moderate, but I'm also enacting Trump policies. Um Marino, Trump guy, and then um, and he's also saying that he is the political outsider. Uh, and yeah, then, he's never held public office, right? Right. And then Larose was sort of going and saying, you know, these other two are millionaires; they haven't ever had to sit down at the dinner table like my family and you know uh, pay the bills and that kind of thing. So I was intrigued uh, by that. And then the other big takeaway was that um, Dolan really came out. Um, you know, with fists flying, he was ready within the first question or two to just like lay into both of them um, with counterpoints. And I know that as a sort of he's a I guess he's sort of the uh, underdog in the sense that he's held state office. He has low name ID, that kind of thing that he uh, really was seemed prepared to go at him. Karen, Laura, any take big takeaways from the debate? I, I think what Julie said was right on point that uh, it, it was aggressive from the first couple of minutes. Uh, Dolan really kind of throwing the first punches there. But, I mean, Marino and LaRose both got their digs in as well. And uh, I, I think it was interesting to hear Matt Dolan speak as as strongly as he did in favor of Trump-related policies because he's been described as he's almost an anti-Trumper. Well, that he made it clear that that's not where he lands and that if he is elected, he is interested in Trump's policies, though he didn't actively seek Trump's endorsement. And it seems unlikely he would have gotten it anyway because Trump made fun of the decision to change the name to the Cleveland Guardians. And of course, Dolan is a part owner of the team. So I, I think there there wasn't a whole lot that was learned that was new here, but it it's always great to see the candidates face each other on stage and take questions from journalists. That's what debates are supposed to be about, is to give you an opportunity to see people interact and think on their feet and not just be speaking to a camera during a a TV ad or something. And I will just leap in and say that there was a spin room afterwards, which um, is where candidates come in and speak to reporters and answer questions. Um, 
Moreno did not come to the spin room. He sent a spokesperson, but the other two did. And I was very heartened that the um, the room was full of student journalists from all around the Cleveland Aww. area, Kent State, Case Western, and I, they asked great questions. And they, they took advantage of the opportunity to ask about um, higher ed censorship issues and um, tuition forgiveness and really meaty issues. So I was very heartened. There were some areas of agreement on key GOP issues. All three support some form of a federal limit on abortion. Um, Here's a clip of Matt Dolan. My pro-life record has reduced abortions in Ohio by 37%. We have had record funding in the pregnancy and crisis centers, so women have an opportunity to have health care during their pregnancy. We've revamped our adoption program. A pro-life record a pro-life record that supports life, a pro-life record that can beat Sherrod Brown. Laura, Sherrod Brown definitely plans to make abortion part of this campaign. Uh, What what do you make of Dolan's position? Okay, so all three of them are on record now saying 15-week ban. So abortions would be allowed until 15 weeks nationally. Of course, Ohio has their constitutional amendment up to generally 22 weeks. So we'll see how that all plays out. Interestingly, Dolan went a little bit of a step further and said he was open to exceptions after 15 weeks. And I'm sure those are the medical exceptions um, and maybe rape and incest. Um, Just kind of to note, um, when the U.S. Supreme Court in June of 2022 overruled Roe v. Wade and decided this should be a state's issue, Republicans, including I'm sure all three of those on stage last week, were like, yes, this should be a state's issue. But now that states are starting to, one by one, say, yes, we want abortion rights, now it should be a federal issue. (laughs) So you're seeing this um, evolution going on with um, Republicans who just oppose abortion. So they're going to do what they want to do to, you know, try to curb it. And one other thing that's interesting is the 15-week ban would still allow most abortions. I mean, most abortions are in the first trimester. So talking about a 15-week ban when the the pro-life community for the longest time was talking about a six-week ban and and even no abortion at all, well, 15 weeks would allow most abortions. And I think that Laura's exactly right here is this as individual states start voting for abortion rights, especially red states like Ohio, it's interesting to hear that language going back and forth that it, it it's a state's issue, I guess, until it's not. <laughs> right. And um, this is coming from the national level. Um, the uh, Susan B. Anthony uh, pro-life uh, fund, you know, they are watching the writing on the wall and uh, they're one of the biggest uh, anti-abortion groups. And they're, they're watching this writing on the wall, as Laura mentions, um, and you know, they're trying to hint. They even had a, a op-ed in the Washington Post talking about, you know, we need to get behind some kind of a compromise uh, because we're losing on this issue. Um, they, and this is really angering, you know, many of the the purists who we uh, live around every day at the Ohio State House who are against abortion of any kind because they see it as a, the destruction of a life. Yeah, it's a moral issue for them, not mm-hmm. a political one. Yeah, it's interesting also because when you were talking the more pro, the pro-choice, the abortion rights side, what they're saying is that these are individual health care decisions that need to be made between a woman and her physician. And so there shouldn't be any state, you know, control over this. And so they would say BS to the fact that Republicans are saying 
we're going to negotiate or we're going to compromise because they're saying you are compromising individual freedoms and individual rights. And if a woman has some kind of horrible pregnancy complication in the second, third trimester, whatever, she needs to do what she needs to do to survive. And there shouldn't be laws around that. So that's their position is no compromise of individual liberties. Immigration also appears to be front of mind for voters, at least in the Republican primary especially. And while candidates agreed that the southern border needed to secure, uh, Dolan, LaRose, and Moreno seemed to be competing on who could eke out the farthest position to the right when it comes to border security and immigration. Here's Bernie Moreno. I'm saying deport anybody who's here illegally. He's redefining amnesty as meaning uh, staying here and getting government benefits or becoming a citizen. Amnesty means anybody who's here illegally has to be deported. Is that the correct definition of amnesty? <laughs> <laughs> I don't think any of them wanted to talk about amnesty. And hearing the word amnesty thrown around, I mean, Marino accused both LaRose and Dolan of wanting amnesty and both Marino and I'm sorry both LaRose and Dolan's website specifically say they don't want amnesty so it's 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 one of those words I think that's thrown around almost as an insult so to speak I thought it was interesting though to hear Matt Dolan compare um that the people of Ukraine have an affinity with the United States because we've been invaded at the southern border he said just like the people of Ukraine have been invaded and I thought that was quite a comparison And then I believe was it LaRose who said that he wanted um, three military companies or something? Yeah, Yeah, we have a clip of that coming up for sure. Yeah, it's it's also interesting to see that all three of them talked about birthright citizenship. So we have in our Constitution, it says if you are born on U.S. soil, you are a U.S. citizen. But it seemed like the three of them wanted to walk that back. Yeah, I just um, I I heard them speaking about how uh, this, you know, we shouldn't be encouraging people to come here and then have have children. Uh, And uh, Marino, of course, was born in in Colombia and um, was brought here legally as a child. Um, And he makes that as sort of a contrast, legal versus illegal. But it, it was it can be kind of muddy in this particular contest. Yeah, so as Laura said, uh, LaRose called on President Biden to deploy three military divisions to the border. Dolan called that irresponsible. But here's what LaRose said as far as his approach for stopping the flow of drugs from Mexico. The definition of a foreign terrorist organization is a group that's willing to kill our fellow Americans. These cartels are killing over 200 Americans a day with the fentanyl that they're bringing into this country. We know that this comes from China, mixed together in Mexico. We must define these cartels as foreign terrorist organizations and use the full force of the U.S. military and the U.S. federal government to kill them so that they can't kill our fellow Americans. Laura, correct me if I'm wrong, but that sounds like LaRose would support drone strikes like essentially he supports bombing mexico yeah and um that is a really sensitive issue i mean imagine if you lived in texas imagine if you lived in like arizona tucson you know um do you want a war on your border so close um i mean there it's not like it's a cakewalk to live down there um crime is high um, you know, there's problems down there, but I don't know if they want because unfortunately, sometimes they. Strike well, Mexico's a, an ally, right? 
So it's instead of working with them, we're going to bomb? Right, because right now a lot of the immigrants that are coming up are not Mexican. They're from like Central South America, Africa, and Haiti. And so um, so they're actually like kind of doing a solid for the United States by keeping them on the Mexican side, and that's draining their social services. So, yeah, um, I don't know. Do we want to – I mean, we're like – in a war in Ukraine, we might be in a war in the Middle East. Do we want another one? <laughs> yeah, and I mean, there's sort of a conflation too, right, of um, people being anti-immigrants um, coming in and people thinking drug cartels are the cause of um, a lot of the opioid epidemic and so forth, and suddenly saying, well, you know, we need to bomb the drug cartels on in a in a country that we're allied with um that's helping us with the immigration problem uh and i don't know i think a lot of people don't understand that um you know there's a lot of coverage in our outlets but you know these are uh streams and streams of people coming from uh countries where it's very difficult and violent to live and they're trying to escape to a better place and the same thing's happening all over the globe um uh, as people migrate, and so um, it's just uh, a very interesting approach, I guess. Very, I, I would agree with you that it's somewhat extreme. And then you have to wonder about, okay, so you take away the supply from Mexico. I mean, people who are hardcore addicts are going to still have a demand, so just taking away the supply isn't going to solve our drug problem here in the United States. So Dolan took a little bit of heat for his position on gun control. So it, for those who don't remember, after the Dayton shooting, Governor DeWine introduced a package of gun control reforms that include a modified version of a red flag law. It was called Strong Ohio, and Dolan was the one who carried it, and he since tried to pass some version of a red flag law. How did he How did he thread that needle? <laughs> well, um, I think that he is trying to say he's very pro-Second Amendment and that these are common-sense sort of reforms. Um, and uh, both of his competitors were saying that he is um, liberal and, you know, Liz Cheney uh, uh, of, of, the, of the race. <laughs> yeah, and don't forget that the last day to register to vote in the March 19th primary is February 20th. So the first day of in-person early voting is February 21st. You got to be registered for before that starts. Um, but, you know, the U.S. Senate primary isn't the only one that's getting a little ugly. So Narajan Thani, he's a state senator. He's trying to run for Congress. He, after uh, this debate, suggested that DeWine send the Ohio National Guard down to Texas to help with the border crisis. No word on whether DeWine's considering <laughs> that. But He's taking a lot of heat on an, sort of an immigrationist way. So one of his opponents is saying that Naraj, who does not live in the district that he's running for, is, quote, a foreigner who needs to stay the 17 miles across the border. Our country has been invaded enough, and under no circumstances will he be elected in this district. It definitely has, like... That immigration tone to it. Definitely racial undertones. Naraj and Tani's parents are immigrants from India, I believe, to the United States. I think he's a citizen, obviously. And I, was he born here? I believe. I he believe was. so. Yes. Yeah. Um. So it's just he's got brown skin, and so Derek Myers, who is his opponent in that race, is hoping to exploit in this district that's mostly rural, maybe some racist vote. <laughs> 
Yeah, and I mean, look, you can have a fair discussion over whether somebody, you don't have to live in district to run for a a house seat. And there could be some fair discussion about whether someone who doesn't live in district should be running. But it was the way in which it was phrased. It definitely had that he's the darker skinned candidate from across the border vibe to it. And it also is kind of Trumpy because, right, I think Donald Trump had made some comments about. and Nikki Haley, sorry, her name slipped me. I can see her face. Nikki Haley, who's also the daughter of immigrants from India, um, you know, whether she was really a citizen. And so, you know, maybe it was also just trying to get on the Trump bandwagon on the part of Derek Myers. Well, right. and, and that race is, I mean, there's like 12 people running in that race. That race is just... A very conservative seat. A very conservative seat. And, and the candidates in that race are trying to out-Trump each other. I mean, it, it's, it's, it, it must be difficult to try to s- stand out in a field of 12 people when you're trying to run for a seat that is whoever wins this Republican primary is most likely going to win in the fall. We're going to take a break. And when we come back, we'll talk about what happens now that the Senate has overridden two of Governor Mike DeWine's vetoes. That's when All Sides continues on 89.7 NPR News. This new year, LifeKit wants to help you succeed because everyone needs a little help being human. It can seem so overwhelming. You're not alone. Who can I commit to being? If you want to do something, then just do it. Just take that first step. Great advice every week. Listen to LifeKit from NPR. Welcome back to All Sides. I'm your host, Anna Staber. If you're just joining us, it's our weekly reporter roundtable where we get you caught up on all the politics political news in Ohio. Flavored tobacco could be back on the shelves in Columbus convenience stores this spring. Republicans in the state house banned cities from regulating the sale of tobacco products over the objection of Governor Mike DeWine. Still with us is Laura Hancock, politics and policy reporter for Cleveland.com, Julie Carr-Smythe, government and politics reporter for the Associated Press, and Karen Kassler, bureau chief for the Ohio Public Radio State House News Bureau. Laura, I always get tripped on the language of this, but (laughs) essentially, Republicans have overridden a veto Mm -hmm. of a ban on cities banning the sale of flavored tobacco. (laughs) So the the easiest way to say it is the state's the final word on tobacco regulations that cities can't have stricter laws than what the state already has. And the state, you know, doesn't have any bans on like menthols, flavor cigarettes, anything like that. Um which I know Columbus City has wanted to do, which is what kind of inspired the legislature to say we are going to preempt or prevent all local governments from going stricter in these tobacco sales. Um, Expect litigation, I think, is pretty safe to say. I mean, nobody's told me that directly, but this is how this tends to go, is the state says, no, you can't have stricter gun laws. No, you can't have stricter tobacco laws, whatever. And then the cities get mad because they see that as a violation of 
provisions in the Constitution that say they have self-governance powers, home rule. Local and then control. They, yeah. And so then they sue. <laughs> so I, I think that's how this is going to go. Now, interestingly, Governor DeWine was on the side of the cities because he, you know, is very into kids and youth. And when you look at kids who use tobacco, most likely they're using it through these flavored products because, you know, I mean, if any anybody out there is tried cigarettes i mean especially your first time it's pretty gross yeah so bubblegum to- mint sounds way better cherry <laughs> <laughs> yeah so um so yeah so um governor dewine did not you know he that's the reason why he did the veto of the legislature's thing in the first place because like no cities should be able to enact stricter the legislature's position is like, well, if, say, Columbus City was able to successfully ban flavored tobacco, well, you would just go out to, you know, Pickerington or wherever and get your smokes that way. Or um, and then they just felt like the constancy for the business environment, of course, DeWine and like the, you know, the Lung Association, Cancer Association, Heart Association, they're all saying this is a win for big tobacco. Yeah, and DeWine has said if you want statewide regulation, just ban it all statewide. Mm-hmm. And uh, Speaker Jason Stevens, when the House overrode the veto a couple weeks ago, mentioned that, saying we should be looking at this at a statewide level. Well, DeWine's talked about that and has said, let's ban it. He He's completely on uh, on board with that. But the question, of course, is how what, what the impact would be on local retailers who sell this stuff. I don't know that the, the argument of, you know, people can just drive out side their city uh, you know uh, they can but obviously it's a little more they of a can pain in the but butt. life in the city and life for someone who smokes regularly is you know either they're going to make a big trip to do that or not but in terms of this being a gateway for children you know it's in teens it certainly wouldn't be as easy for them to get it if it were banned in their city and the, you know the cities are where the populations are and that's why the home rule uh, can have a real impact yeah. Um, you know, the cities are definitely upset about this, saying that because in particular, the legislature gave them the authority to license and police the sale of tobacco just a few years ago when we raised the purchase age to 21. So they're like, hey, you gave us this authority in 2019, and now essentially you're kind of taking it all back. Well, and they, they were pretty clear that they wanted to do this because there was a standalone bill that would have done it that DeWine vetoed, and then they put it into the budget and DeWine vetoed that. So it's it's pretty clear there's this struggle going back and forth between DeWine, who's been – he's he's anti-smoking, I think, in any way. Yeah. And especially when it comes to this stuff because of the effect on kids and that kids might just start picking up the habit. Uh, so – I, I guess this – I don't know if this is the last word. I mean, Columbus is going to file a lawsuit almost certainly and, and to try to stop this and keep the ban that they have in effect. So we'll, I guess we'll go to the, the Ohio Supreme Court again to, to, to talk about home rule, <laughs> which you and I did last week, Anna. Yes, we had a great episode last week on home rule if you're curious about the play between the state and the cities. Um, I want to turn to the veto override on House Bill 68. This is the legislation that would ban transgender minors from accessing hormone therapy and gender transition surgeries until they turn 18. And it would also ban transgender girls from playing on female sports teams. So, Laura, the veto wasn't the veto override wasn't a surprise. No, because as soon as Governor DeWine vetoed it, you had statements from both chambers which have Republican supermajority saying we're gonna we're gonna address this quickly, and um, then when you looked at how it, the the original legislation passed in each 
um, chamber, they had the three-fifths supermajority that's constitutionally required to do a veto override. So they got the votes easily. And there was even in the Senate last week, somebody who was on like a wedding anniversary trip, and they even proceeded with the vote without her in there. Yeah, Nathan Manning, right, was the only Republican to vote against the override. Yes, he voted. um, You know, there used to be a time when overriding the governor was not something you just did willy-nilly. It was like a big deal because it was like political capital and ticking off the governor. And, you know, is this going to affect you further down the line? Um, Nowadays, they seem to have no problem vetoing the governor. But back in the day, they never because they're all in the same party after all. And I thought that was interesting in the discussion about the veto on the ban on flavored tobacco bans. Senate Majority Leader Rob McCauley, who is likely to be the Senate president when Matt Hoffman is term limited and leaves, he made a comment about if we have the votes to do a veto override. The governor does what he wants to do. And as he said, quote, for us to not even consider overriding that veto in some cases would be an abdication of our authority, would be minimizing our role in this three-branch system of government. I think that's a pretty strong statement that we're going to move in one direction and... You can if the governor get on the train or be hit by it, yeah, to quote another former governor. <laughs> <laughs> right. But I mean, the governor is the titular head of the Republican Party in the state of Ohio. You know, he is supposed to have a um, high authority and uh, and respect and, and sort of, um, you know, uh, be setting a tone for our state in a way. And it's very parallel to what we're seeing in Washington, where Republicans are just having a uh, internal divisions that are preventing them from really getting behind the policies that they most, um, you know, they're getting behind a policy agenda that's any kind of consistent. And this is another situation where we're almost certainly going to have a lawsuit, right? Yeah. I think, I, I, um, yeah, yeah, Equality Ohio said that they were evaluating their legal options. So, um, yeah, and you look at other states. Um, Arkansas. Arkansas. I mean, they because we did a double whammy. We did both sports and health, minor health care. Generally, that's done um, separately. If, yeah. yeah. <laughs> so, so, yeah, it'll be interesting to see if these are separate lawsuits or if it's just one lawsuit that's all encompassing of both. Um, but, yeah. You could even see a single subject lawsuit. I was about to say that. Yeah, that <laughs> it could be as easy as that. Yeah, I, I don't think those have been very successful over time. No. Uh, but yeah, this was two separate bills that were combined into one. Mm-hmm. And I think uh, Equality Ohio was saying that they are considering their legal options, like Laura said, but they're also worrying about what about people who are reaching out to the state's largest group that works with trans people, Trans Ohio. They told me that, or Equality Ohio told me that Trans Ohio has reported 68 Ohio families have reached out saying, we're going to leave either to get treatment in another state or just leave the state entirely. And transgender minors who are currently on puberty blockers or hormone therapy will be able to continue. They get grandfathered in under this bill, but it sounds like some of them might leave anyway, just out of like long-term concerns. Right. And I mean, that could be an area of um, litigation as well, because you're looking at somebody who's right in the middle of a medical um, series of, of treatments that are, you know, they're they're changing. In it and um, as I understand it, sort of uh, more, uh, the treatment 
progresses. And the grandfather clause says you may continue to get the treatment you now have, but whether it progresses or not, as as I think it's supposed to do in these cases, um, is a question. And then kind of connected to that are executive rules an executive order and administrative rules that are going through the process of rulemaking in the state right now that would affect all transgender people, not just transgender minors. It says transgender minors, youth cannot get surgeries. Okay, well, that's not really going on. So not super controversial, but it also says that everyone, including adults, needs to have a multidisciplinary team that includes a therapist, an endocrinologist, and they call it medical ethicist, which isn't a job. It's bioethicist, but um, no insurance company is going to likely pay for one of those. And there's very few bioethicists that work in the clinical setting. So you're showing for adults that this is going to be challenging. And a lot of adults... If they've been on the therapy for like 20 years, they just start doing it through their primary care physician. They don't go to their endocrinologist maybe once a year, you know, and so this, this is going to create problems. Um, um, Governor DeWine said in an interview that he was open to amending those rules, but we'll see if he's going to take adults off or not. And Senate President Matt Huffman got asked the question about not only families leaving the state, about whether this might impact somebody's decision to move into Ohio. And it didn't sound like he really thought that was going to be an issue. No. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, So I want to shift gears and talk about marijuana or Delta 8. So two different things. Laura, Mm -hmm. you went on a shopping spree to find out (laughs) how easy it would be to buy Delta 8, which is a legal hemp product that can kind of get you high. I think it's called diet weed. So what did you find? Okay, so Governor DeWine spoke to Cleveland.com and the Plain Dealers editorial board, and he held up some of these gummies, and he was like, this is terrible. And I'm skeptical, right? Like, that's just my job as a journalist. And so after work that day, I just got in my car. It was really cold. He had said that gummies were sold to people in Springfield. That's like 50 miles from where I live. So I was like, all right, I'm not going out there because it's too cold. Um, (laughs) Well, I was afraid, like, slipping, accident, whatever, in my car. So I just went to some BP stations around Columbus because that's where he said that they were sold. I went to four. Only one sold Delta 8 um, THC products. And um, they were weird. They turned their camera on me and were, like, filming me as I was looking. So I, like, left because I was uncomfortable. And then the other... um, BP stations didn't sell anything. I went to, I was desperate. I went to Sunoco station. They didn't sell anything. Finally, before I went to my house, I went to the corner store in my neighborhood where I'd seen like glass marijuana pipes being sold in the past. So I thought, oh, they'll have it. And so they did. It was like (laughs) Delta eight, Kratom (laughs) in like neon sign. And so, um, so I was like, there were some gummies that looked totally like they were marketed to kids, like DeWine had said. So I was like, I definitely want those. And the guy behind the counter was like, oh, they're just not good quality. And there's like better stuff. If you look here, here and here, you know, it's cheaper or whatever. And I knew he was probably right. But I wanted this because it like kind of was proof positive that this stuff is beat. It was called Nerdy Gummies. And it was the same like font and colors as Nerd Candies. And um, and these companies, a lot of companies are suing um, the copyright t- infringement, right? Yep, yep, and um, counterfeit stuff. Anyway, so um, so I bought those, and then as I was paying with my credit card, he was like, "Do you want a pre-roll joint?" Or he, was, <laughs> he was like, "Do you want a pre-roll?" And I was like, "Sure." And so he 
holds up this glass, large glass, kind of like what you put like lollipops in, um, case full of these joints. Are they Delta 8 or are they marijuana? They're THCA. Okay. Which is something else. It's the acid of THC that comes on the plant. And when you heat up THC, it's called a decarbonoxylization or something. When you heat it up to a certain point, it becomes THC or Delta 9, which is what THC is. And so um, it totally smelled like weed. I said, I have trouble sleeping. And he goes, oh, this is sativa. You want indica. So then he gets another job <laughs> and he gives me indica. And so I paid for it. And again, I paid for it with my credit card. They added tax. I don't know if they're remaining it to the state, but <laughs> oh, you know what I mean? <laughs> like it, w- it wasn't like, oh, this is my side hustle. You got to pay cash. It was like, totally on a credit card and uh or a debit card but um yeah and so and it smells like super like a joint and it's rolled beautifully it definitely was machine rolled and um yeah so I have candy and I have like a joint they were on my fun weekend sounds like (laughs) (laughs) yeah and so it was um yeah, it's, it's, um, so it's like yes and no, it sounds like it was harder to get than the governor made it out to be, but this, these packaging definitely looks like kids' candy. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Um, some of it was just like basic kind of like squares, which is how like a gummy is sold, like in Michigan, for instance. And so it's not like, like anything that a kid would be, nothing cute, you know, just boring kind of, but then the gummy bears with the little nerd candies, you know, that definitely was not. Um, and then the other interesting thing about the gummy candies is one gummy bear is five servings. And so, is it like a regular size gummy bear? A little bit bigger. So you but, just like bite the head off. Well, or you take a knife. One you know, arm. If you want to be precise, but I mean, I'm thinking, I'm thinking you could cut this in half, maybe thirds, but five. I don't know. This That's getting a, weird. And so I think it basically exists to get you high. On that note, uh, we're going to take a break. And when we come back, (laughs) we're going to talk about a plan to eliminate Ohio's income tax. That's when All Sides continues on 89.7 NBR News. This new year, LifeKit wants to help you succeed because everyone needs a little help being human. It can seem so overwhelming. You're not alone. Who can I commit to being? If you want to do something, then just do it. Just take that first step. Great advice every week. Listen to LifeKit from NPR. Welcome back to All Sides. I'm your host, Anna Staver. It's our weekly reporter roundtable, where we catch you up on the State House news from last week and preview the week ahead. Still with us is Laura Hancock, politics and policy reporter for Cleveland.com, Julie Carsmythe, government and politics reporter for the Associated Press, and Karen Kassler, bureau chief for the Ohio Public Radio State House News Bureau. Going, going, gone. That's what a group of Republicans want to say about the state income tax, along with the main business tax, which is the commercial activities tax. Eliminating these would cost about $13 billion. So where are we going to get that money? That's a good question. I I talked to one of the sponsors, uh, Representative Adam Matthews, about, okay, you've got 
all this money that would be lost with the elimination of both the it's state not income change. tax, right? Um, but also the the commercial activity tax is starting to go away already because the state budget. There was a cut in there for about 90% of Ohio businesses will no longer have to pay it. So, yeah, I think you need to have like gross income above two million, three, three million, million, three, three million. million now. So that one's already on its way out, but but that puts a little bit of pressure here. And when you start talking about the, it's not the state's main source of revenue, but it's one of the biggest sources of revenue. Uh, what do you do to replace it? And and quite often you hear the things like, well, states that have no income tax do just fine, like Texas and Florida. Okay, well, they have tourism, they have energy. And uh, Matthew- Yeah, we don't have Disney World. Yeah, Matthew said, though, that we could really be boosting our tourism dollars, which I thought was sure. quite, quite a thing to compete against- um, Places like Texas and Florida, especially Florida, uh, we do have two amusement parks. So I guess there's there's Cedar, Cedar Point, Point is cool. Like I'm not going to knock it; it's really cool. <laughs> but when it comes to replacing that kind of money, I mean, the argument has been that if you get rid of these kind of taxes, that business growth will make up for it. That every time we have lowered income taxes, there has been more revenue coming in. But we've also increased the state sales tax. Uh, there have been some other things that have happened, and uh, lots and lots of federal COVID dollars in the last couple of years. Absolutely. And I, I said, well, what are you going to cut? And he said, well, the only thing that he was committed to saying he would not cut would be Medicaid, uh, which is a huge part of the state budget. But then you've got the other huge parts of the state budget, like K-12 through education and other health and human services and uh, prisons and, and all these other things. It, it's a lot of money to just suddenly come up with. That's why they're trying to phase it out. Uh, the phase out in the uh, Senate bill will be in, I think, four years and the house bill would be in six years yeah so i guess but the goal is to get to zero income tax by 2030 so both pieces of legislation have like different metrics for like ratcheting it down to elimination but the goal is 2030 right and i think that uh, we've seen this before i mean many have tried and many have failed i mean it seems like every budget they cut another tax bracket right and they're trying to simplify and reduce and uh you know it will be interesting uh, having just spoken about marijuana which is now i guess legal um you know uh maybe there will be fewer prisoners in this state and they can close a prison or something like that but it would need to be something rather significant with that amount of money and i i think the effort has been for a while i mean starting with uh former governor john Kasich uh, cutting the local government fund pushing some of that down to local communities and that comes back to that rural versus urban struggle that seems to be happening among legislators from rural areas who are in a lot of times in leadership now and then lawmakers who are from the urban areas who are democrats and so it, it's it's a continuation of that struggle that you see in the legislature and i'm seeing a lot of uh, i mean the writing on the wall maybe they would try to cut higher ed for example mm-hmm. because there's a big culture war right now between republicans and democrats over what's being taught at colleges and universities so it sounds like at least for right now they're saying they're hoping maybe oiling natural gas i think is what they were citing maybe natural gas exploration will increase maybe we'll get more tourism maybe business activity will increase the idea being that we're going to raise this money without having to do things like raise the sales tax but 
it did sound like they weren't quite sure what local governments would do. And that's the big question, right? Like, if local governments lose a bunch of this money, are they going to then raise their own taxes? So essentially, would this be like break even for the average Ohioan? Yeah, it would make the Democratic cities have to bear the burden. And so then the legislature can say, like, look at they're crime ridden, they're high taxes, they're awful. Even though they're the economic generators of the state, and if the cities didn't exist, Ohio would be broke. And if you have more questions about the state income tax, we're actually doing a whole show about it on Wednesday because I could not resist. (laughs) Um, So Wednesday at 10 a.m., you'll be able to hear all about the state income tax. Um, And speaking of deficits... The Ohio State Board of Education says it could be in a multi-million dollar deficit by this summer. Laura, what's going on there? Um, When the in the two year budget, when they created the new K-12 agency, the Department of Education and Workforce due, they put most of the money with due and then they kept the State Board of Education in place because it's in the Constitution. And then they gave it a very minor role, which was licensing, discipline, um, school district territory transfers, a couple other things, but pretty small role. And so they still do exist and they still do need a staff. I mean, it doesn't, you know, teachers can't get licensed out of thin air. So now they're saying the tune before they said, oh, well, we'll fix it in the next budget, the whole now they're saying you have to right-size yourself, and Governor DeWine's, I believe his spokesman even said they need to look to right-size themselves. Interestingly, the Department of the Department or the State School Board um, has been told that they have to move out to Reynoldsburg. Oh my gosh. To a um, building out there. Because Dew is in their building that's on the corner of Front and Broad Streets, downtown Columbus. Um, However, I talked to somebody who used to be on the state board who said just as of last year, the building wasn't totally full as it was. So they could have the two departments. um, I don't know. I think they're just, you know, blow after blow. Isn't Reynoldsburg where they keep the exotic animals? Well, it's it's literally on the Department of Agriculture's campus, so it kind of fire marshal too. So there's there's all that. It kind of reminds me. Have you guys ever seen Office Space? Mm. Oh yeah, in the basement. Yeah, Yeah. where they just keep pushing him out and out because they don't want to outright fire him. Mm -hmm. And there's this is all wrapped up in litigation, also. So. because it was like, at first it was like a for sure thing. And then when I started inquiring about it, it was like, oh, this is a possible thing. So I think they realized that this could, this, the optics look bad and this could end up in the lawsuit somehow. So we'll see what happens. It was supposed to, it's supposed to happen in February. So. so the Super Bowl is coming up. And if the governor decides to make another trip to Vegas, how much the state spends protecting him won't be public record. That's thanks to the Ohio Supreme Court, right, Julie? Right, yes. They they made a decision that the records of the um, security provided to the governor when he travels um, for that incident are not are not public. And, you know, under the under the premise that you know, these sorts of things are um, delicate because you're it, it involves security. Yeah, so essentially in 2022, Mike DeWine and a bunch of his family went to see the Bengals compete in the Super Bowl. And then the Cincinnati Inquirer was like, hey, how much did it cost? So like DeWine covered his tickets, like the state didn't pick up the tab for DeWine or his family. But there was Ohio State Highway Patrol and they had to fly, they had to get tickets, they had to do the whole thing. And the question was, how much did 
the state of Ohio spend and Cincinnati Enquirer sued and ultimately they lost in this 4-3 ruling. And I don't think that's a huge surprise given that there have been lawsuits before. There was one trying to get access to former Governor John Kasich's schedule and that was the same answer was this is a security record we can't provide that and and that's what the explanation was with the inquirer's lawsuit uh that the state had said no we use the security records from this super bowl trip to develop security plans for later which the inquirer said oh come on (laughs) so but it, it looks like this is just not public record which is very frustrating because I mean, sure, DeWine covered the costs of his, his family tickets, going, yeah. but there are other people, the, the troopers that went with them, who paid for those. Taxpayers did. Yeah, and it just seems strange to me, and I don't know, maybe I don't fully understand, but like, it just seems really strange to me that a total number, let's say we spent a million dollars on the flights, the hotels, the overtime, everything. How could I use that number to like work out his security? Right, yeah. right. Um <laughs> I have a hard time seeing that. I mean, nobody's asking for detailed security plans outside of his home in Greene County. They're just wanting to know, like, how many flights were purchased, how many tickets were purchased. You know, this could have been an itemized list. This didn't even have to end up before the Supreme Court. And once again, party line vote. Mm -hmm. Republicans voted to keep those records as security records and and not make them uh, public. And then the Democrats, they voted to make them public, and Justice Pat DeWine, who is, of course, the son of Governor Mike DeWine, he recused himself. He recused himself. Did he go to the Super Bowl that I'm, year? I'm not sure. I don't know. But it's... <laughs> All the more reason, probably, why he wasn't <laughs> making that choice. Um, but a Democratic state rep- representative has introduced legislation that would make these travel totals public, but it's way too soon to tell if that bill is going to go anywhere. Right. Well, and this is Elliot Forehan, who I believe is still waiting for access uh, to get back into the state house, um, there was altercations, I guess, between him and and some other lawmakers, including Democratic lawmakers. And so he's, I think, he's trying to fight to get back to where he was before all that. So last week, Dewine got as close as I think he's going to get to saying that he no longer supports the death penalty. It was in an interview with the USA Today Network Ohio bureau, and Dewine wondered whether the death penalty is actually a deterrent. Right. And he is he has walked this fine line for a while. We have, you know, he he suspended uh executions for a practical reason being that we we were unable to get the drugs we needed to do, to perform the lethal injection. Uh and so he has he has stopped short. I know back when before Larry Householder was uh Imprisoned, he he was talking about Republicans might be willing to get rid of the death penalty, and we've had uh, bipartisan efforts to try to do that now. And uh, so I think maybe he's inching that way by saying that that it's possible. Um, but somebody probably will need to decide because you know we did see this this issue with uh, the state trying to use nitrogen oxide or something too. Well, Alabama carried out its first mm-hmm. execution with nitrogen gas um, just a couple days ago. So for the long time now, we've had, DeWine has been in a very, like, I mean, he's been in a position of being able to be like, well, we just don't have the drugs. Like Alabama sort of opens the door for, well, maybe there's another way. Exactly. So it's like uh, that is a sort of a call to 
those who have been able to use that excuse, if you will, to say they're going to have to come up with something more than that to keep executions from going forward. There is a bill in the legislature that's bipartisan sponsored and it would get rid of the death penalty so the death penalty isn't as like people aren't as wild about it as they were like 20 years ago you're seeing more and more republicans and democrats being like uh you know this is too expensive to do the appeals it's just cheaper to lock them up you know for life and um and then you have all these complications of these drugs i mean dewine specifically said that this fight wasn't worth it with the legislature, especially when he has all these other priorities and this other agenda that he wants to get accomplished. That's what he would want to fight for. He doesn't want to fight over the death penalty. And so just basically... And it would be a fight. Yeah. There are some Republicans in leadership who are very pro-keeping mm-hmm. the death penalty. Yeah. But- and Attorney General Dave Yost is among the supporters of the death penalty who specifically noted on Twitter or X that uh, Alabama successfully used nitrogen to carry out a capital sentence. And he writes, perhaps nitrogen widely available and easy to manufacture can break the impasse of unavailability of drugs for lethal injection. But as I recall, weren't there some concerns about the use of, of nitrogen that uh, the the impact on the inmate who was being yes. executed, that he uh, appeared to struggle a little bit? So I think that that's something to at least consider. Yeah. And in that same interview with the USA Today Network, Ohio Bureau, uh, DeWine told reporters that John Husted will be a great governor. So no surprise to anyone, he is going to be backing John Husted when his term ends. Right. I'm intrigued because uh, as we've been talking the whole show, you know, Mike DeWine is uh, at odds with the conservative um, wing of his party. John Husted will obviously need to to uh, gain those folks to um you know, win an, a gubernatorial primary. Uh, so, but at the same time, DeWine is very popular uh, uh, and has been elected twice, has a big name. So we'll see what happens. Yeah. And really quick, before we come to the end of our hour, there is a new painting in the Ohio State House. It's called Ohioans in Space, and it pays homage to the number of astronauts that we have, including Neil Armstrong, Jim Lovell, and Judith Resnick. And John Glenn. Oh yes! Oh my goodness, that is terrible. But it was oh. it, it was so cool at the state house last week with the astronauts there. The energy was just really great. There were kids there, and they were watching science experiments in the atrium, and and just the 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 presence of these guys was just really kind of neat. And if you're wondering where it is, it'll be just off the state house rotunda, across from a painting honoring the Wright brothers. Perfect, right? You know, Wright Brothers, astronauts in space. Oh, no, it's great. Aviation of all kinds. And that'll do it for this hour of All Sides. Thanks so much to Laura Hancock, State House reporter with Cleveland.com. Thank you for having me. Julie Carr-Smythe, government and politics reporter for the Associated Press. Happy to be here. And Karen Kassler, bureau chief for the State House Radio Public News Bureau. Great to be here. 